Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey, everybody. We're back for another episode, and today we've got two awesome guests that are joining us talking about something that is going to be really helpful for you guys with building your trails skills. So we have talked a little bit on this podcast already about positive reinforcement training. And today we're going to talk specifically about how to use toys, because while we use a lot of food in our training, there is some use for toys when we talk about building trail skills and life skills for our dogs. And so today I've got two other professional trainers on with me, and we're going to talk all about that. But before we dive in, Amber, Chris, would you guys like to introduce yourselves to our podcast? Sure. Uh, I'm Amber. I am in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, and the owner and head trainer at Summit Dog Training. Uh, and we we kind of like to make our focus in our training programs on getting people out with their dogs, doing all sorts of things, whether that's a, a good um, hike or trail a session or uh, doing other dog sports or other fun activities just around town. So that's, that's, I'm excited to talk about that uh, from that angle today. Yeah. And talk to us a little bit about how you got started in training. Uh, I started back when I was 10 years old, I begged my parents for a dog and they said only if you take it to training class. And so of course um, I did. And I was hooked from there. So I actually started teaching people, pet uh, dog owners primarily, when I was 13, I taught my first puppy class and then have kind of just been hooked ever since. Excellent. And who do you share your life with right now? Talk to us about your little dog. Yeah, right now I share my life with Jamie, who is an eight pound papillon. Uh, And so may seem like an unlikely trail companion, but we are working hard on uh, helping him to be as successful in that environment as possible. He loves to get out together. And he is not um, as interested in food reinforcers as a lot of my previous dogs, I think partly because of his size, partly because of just who he is as a dog. And so we have used toy reinforcement um, as a significant portion of our uh, reinforcement plan for building trail skills, uh, recall skills, uh, focus and engagement, a lot of different uh, skills that Jamie has are backed by his enthusiasm for toys. So that's uh, a really uh, recent (laughs) application that I've used our toy skills for. So I'm excited to to share more about him and his journey. Yeah. And I'm excited also for you to be able to kind of share some love for our littles, because obviously (laughs) when people think about getting out with dogs, being adventurous, doing dog powered sports, we often think of larger dogs, but little dogs certainly have a place in it and Mm -hmm. they need the same amount of training as our bigger dogs. So I love that you're going to be able to share some of that with us today. Yes, I'm excited. All right. And Carissa, if you would like to introduce yourself to our podcast. I am Carissa Carvel. I own Alpine Behavior and Training out of Glenwood, Colorado. Um, And I live, I'm lucky enough to live in a place where outdoor adventuring is a high priority for everyone around me. Um, So we try to hit the trails quite a bit. And a lot of my clients in this area, that's their goal. Um, getting out in all weather, getting on the river, going, you know, cross country skiing with their dog, all of that fun stuff. <laughs> and that's wonderful. That's exactly what we're talking about today. And who is your trail companion? Who do you share your life with? So I have a three-year-old German shepherd. His name is Ben. Um, and he is all around an awesome adventure buddy. He's quite happy that it's starting to get cold out though. <laughs> Mine are too. Mine have increased in enthusiasm and their desire to be outside, which I love. And obviously, as the weather starts to cool off, it makes it a perfect time for us to get out on the trails with our dogs. Uh, And some of what we're talking about today can be applied while we're out with them. And some of it is a little more geared towards at-home skills that we can work on to help prepare our dogs for getting out. So before we dive in, would one of you like to explain the concept of reinforcement, what it is, and what we're really talking about when we're talking about using toys. Because it's not just playing with our dogs. It's it's pretty specific on how we have to use these toys in order to reward certain behaviors. Yeah. So um, reinforcement is basically applying a 
thing that our learner enjoys to increase the behavior, right? So if I really like that my dog looks at me with a tilted head, <laughs> if he um, does that and I give him a toy afterwards I'm and he enjoys toys, I'm more likely to see a tilted head look in the future. Um, utilizing those toys is some is a skill on both ends of the leash, right? The dogs and the humans, um, especially when you're talking about, well, any dog, but a dog that really likes biting the toy. I need to present my toy in a certain way. Um, a tiny dog, I can't hold my toy up high and expect my tiny dog to get it. I need to present my toy in a way that he could get it. Um, so it's, it's an important skill on both ends of the leash and, um, and a really awesome reinforcer for so many things. Um, it's easy to take one or a couple toys with you versus if I have a gigantic dog who eats a lot, <laughs> taking bags and bags of treats and food. Um, if I can take a couple toys on a run, um, I'm not going to be running with pounds of food. I, I have a couple toys. It's a lot easier for both of us to be able to do that. And I'm not risking um, you know, his tummy hurting after eating a lot of food. So that's really interesting that you bring that up too, because it's a human skill as well as a dog skill. And I think that's an important thing to note because often when we think of training and reinforcement and specifically food, it's pretty easy to dispense a treat to your dog. Mm -hmm. But toys are a little different, and we have to be very mindful about not only what toy we're using and how our dog might feel about that toy, but also the manner in which we are delivering it, which can change based on each individual dog and their desires. And I love that you brought up the little dogs, too, because there's some important considerations, as Amber, I'm sure that you'll <laughs> you'll address, yeah. uh, that we need to be mindful of when we are playing with our little dogs. I was just going to add that the, the human end of the leash uh, component of using a toy as a reinforcement successfully involves a lot about controlling uh, how we deliver and, and how we give the dog access to the toy. So a lot of times uh, toy play and reinforcement is, is thought of as something that um, the dog controls and the dog directs, which can is definitely a factor and should be part of our discussion. What does the dog enjoy with the toy? But we also have to in order to use it as an effective reinforcer, we have to control access to the toy so that we can deliver access at the time that's actually going to be reinforcing a specific behavior. So rather than the dog jumps up and grabs the toy and yay, the dog has the toy and we can plan, can have a good time, we deliver access to the toy at the key time so that the dog is is learning that the contingent behavior, the behavior that happened right before the toy that we then marked and say, get it or whatever uh, other words we, I think we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, that contingent, creating that contingent relationship where the behavior prompts the toy access is a key piece of actually using the toy as a reinforcer versus just an enrichment activity for our dogs. And that access happens both within a training session, as you just mentioned, and also outside of a training session. We need yeah, to make sure absolutely. that we're building a very special relationship with this toy in order for it mm -hmm. to be an effective reinforcer. Yeah. So when we're looking at our toy specifically, we also need to look at the dog's individual uh, instincts, individual mm -hmm. pref preferences. So what are some things that you look for when you're looking at the dog in front of you to decide what type of toy and what type of toy engagement might be best suited for that dog. I'm going to start with each dog behind, by kind of presenting them with a few options. Uh, I might choose a handful of different toys and then present them in a handful of different ways and see what the dog seems to perk up and really enjoy. And some dogs are, are going to be thrilled across the board, but others are going to be a little bit more selective. So things like, you know, maybe bouncing a, a tug toy, um, jumping it around like, you know, a rabbit or tossing a toy uh, or dragging something across the ground for the dog to chase, testing out some different methods of presenting the toy so that, and then kind of just taking some assessment of what the dog seems to light up and get really excited about. Uh, and then second piece of that that I look for is if the dog possesses the toy, 
what do they do after that point? Do they bring it back to me and say, tug, tug, I want you to hold on to the end of this and give me some resistance? Do they take it under the dining room table and start to chew on it? Do they run around tossing it up in the air, having a great time? Um, what do they choose to do? And I think in that case, it's it's important to know we can we can modify what they do a little bit, but we also have to understand what the dog really is seeking out of a toy response. Because if we are fighting that the whole time and not giving the dog any opportunity to actually play with the toy the way that they would like to choose to play with the toy, then they're going to get frustrated with the game and disengage. Uh, and if we, you know, say, for example, the thing that the dog loves to do with the tennis ball the most is sit there and chomp it in their jaws for um, 20 seconds and we are immediately at the end of a fetch demanding that the dog relinquish the toy to us so that we can throw it again we can actually inadvertently create several problems there one the dog just stops bringing the toy back because they would rather do something else with it um, or the dog gets frustrated or the dog just is like well this is a dumb game i'm not playing so we have to understand what the dog is looking for and then we can we can better give them outlets for that uh, and also work to change it if we want them to do something different with the toy. I think, I think that's huge. You know, a lot of training comes down to observation, us being able to observe the dog, observe what their preference is with toys in particular is huge because while we might think, gosh, my, my dog loves playing fetch, like you mentioned, it could be the fact of chewing on the ball that's their favorite part. And we need to know that in order to deliver that toy as an effective reinforcer and to make sure that, like you mentioned, the afterwards part is smooth, which we're, we're going to dive into a little bit. Yes. Because if the dog just wants to chomp and I'm taking it back every time, mm -hmm. the dog isn't going to want to play the game in the way that I think. And right. so I could start misinterpreting some of their behaviors. And we can also inadvertently add other behaviors in that we don't like as much. I realized uh, when working in the agility course um, ring with my new puppy, Jamie, that if I tossed that toy after he went over the last jump, he would race over, grab the toy, and then race around the ring with it and didn't want to come back to me to put his leash on or anything like that. That's not a behavior I want happening at that point in our agility run. And so an alternative, instead of relinquishing the toy in a toss uh, that I started doing was giving him the opportunity to come and tug with me where I retain the end of the toy. And so then we're not getting any of those unwanted behaviors in that part of that sequence. So we're offering toys to the dogs, offering a variety in style, offering a variety in how we present it to see what they prefer. And some of our dogs certainly will have more interest in toys than others. Some of our more Nordic or primitive breeds that do often tend to thrive in dog-powered sports might not have as much natural interest in playing with toys, especially as they start to age a little bit. So when you're working with dogs, are there different techniques that you guys use in terms of building drive in our dogs that might be less interested or finding different types of games for them that might be a little more interesting? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I grew up with huskies and hound dogs. <laughs> so those are typical breed, typically breeds that are not, um, you know, the crazy toy. They don't, they don't necessarily want to like bite onto things. Um, they're not quite like terriers where they're shredding things and, you know, degutting things, <laughs> but they really like to chase. They like to um, go after things. They may or may not pick that thing up and bring it back to me. That's fine. Um, but as a kid, I started to notice that. And now having a dog breed that really likes to bite things and tug things and, you know, retrieve things and bring it back to me. Um, I am so thankful for those years that I got to <laughs> struggle with um, playing with my dogs and finding different ways. Because now I have all of these different um, points of view for, for clients and for people. But um, I really like using flirt poles. And Amber can talk about this more with um, small dogs and with Jamie specifically. But using flirt poles, um, which is kind of a cat toy <laughs> looking device with a toy on the end of a, a pole and you can kind of flirt it around. Um, 
really fun for hounds if you flirted up the tree, um, utilizing different smells as well. So going to an outdoor shop and getting um, pheromone smells um, can be really exciting for hounds <laughs> and um, those kinds of breeds that, that want to use their nose more than anything else. Um, and then of course, kind of thinking about toy play as um, something that you can teach as you can any other behavior. So um, can we, you know, tug for two seconds and get a piece of food? Can you bring the ball two steps forward and get a piece of food possibly? Or can you bring me the toy to get released to go smell this super awesome smell or pull me on the sled or something like that? <laughs> um, so utilizing other reinforcers for our toy play. Um, but that starts with that observation of the dog. Um, what, what do they really like to do the most? Um, and how can I kind of use that to my benefit? <laughs> I think that's huge that you brought up other reinforcers in the mix with toys when we're, when we're building it, because obviously when we look at play, a lot of it does go down to dogs, individual instincts, what they were bred for, you, you're more likely to see a golden retriever want to parade and retrieve. You're more likely maybe to see a German shepherd want to use their mouth and bite and tug. And our more primitive kind of prey driven dogs might want to chase things. So harnessing that, but then also being able to increase the likelihood of that play behavior happening by access to environment or by using food. And certainly sometimes that can get tricky because we need to find a balance, right? If the food is too high a value, then the dog doesn't want the toy and vice versa. But starting those foundations inside low distraction environments and observing what really turns that dog into excitement, you know, when they're kind of getting engaged with it can help us make training decisions on building that. Now, when we are looking at our dogs, observing our dogs and figuring out what they get excited about, we certainly need to then start thinking about how we can use those toys. Because when we're using food reinforcement, one of the reasons that, as you guys know, that it, it is so popular is because it's easy for us to give quickly. It's easy for us to give in a very consistent manner. And so we can get a lot of repetitions in a single training session. So it's very powerful in that sense, in terms of getting lots of repetitions, but toys can make that a little bit more challenging because some of what a dog might enjoy with play and toys can take some time or even bring the dog further away from us. So how do you start to take this idea of play and take these dogs interests and then really harness it into something that we can use for a reinforcer? I think that there's there's several different ways to approach this, but my favorite that I, I kind of view as maybe a little bit of a shortcut is going back to that flirt pole um, idea that uh, Carissa mentioned earlier. And I really think that um, it's such a wonderful tool because as the human, you retain the end of the toy without the toy losing any of its excitement and value to the dog. And in fact, that makes the value more. And so for a dog that maybe generally would take the toy and run away with it to have a good time, we can actually teach the dog that I am a big part of what makes this toy fun and exciting. And so doing that, you could certainly replicate that with just a regular tug toy. It requires a little bit extra effort to maintain the, the end of it. So I'm a big proponent of a flirt pole as a, an initial training um, tool. And then um, a second game or concept that really, I think, helps kind of build this idea that we can be at the center of the toy play uh, is actually something I learned from Carissa. Um, this uh, toy, uh, two toys game of having two toys of similar value uh, that you could look exactly identical. So when I'm ordering toys, often I order them in sets of twos so that if I toss one or give my dog um, access to have control over one toy, I have an exact match under my arm that in a second, once they've kind of had a chance to enjoy and get get some of the reinforcement that they would choose out of playing with the toy they possess, I can pull that matching toy out of my um, armpit and say, hey, come back over here and um, continue to engage with me with this other toy um, and teaching the dog this concept of the most exciting toy is the one that I have. And they otherwise they're, they're equal 
the toys look exactly the same, but the one that I have is always going to be more interesting because I can animate it a little bit. So um, that's, those are kind of starting things that I use to kind of build me into the center of the toy thing before we even start adding any sort of cues or, uh, or anything along those lines. And that um, two toys is a concept that I got from Shade Weitzel of Fenzi. So I give all the credit to her. <laughs> um, but it's a really, really powerful way to decrease conflict in toy play because taking that, that toy back, possessing that toy back from the dog um, can cause a lot of conflict. Why would I give this, why would I bring this to you if you're just going to take it away from me every time? Even if me as the human gives it right back, there's that conflict of, ooh, don't take that from me. So having two toys um, just totally changed the game. Um, and and you can, you know, move towards just having one toy. The, the point isn't always to have two toys. Um, but it's definitely something that I go back to with every puppy, something I go back to within training my own dog, um, and especially if I'm seeing any sort of conflict or um, and that may look like, for him, it may look like chomping the toy more, um, circling me more and not bringing it straight back to me. And that could be for many reasons. I mean, I have a video of accidentally stepping on my dog's foot and she's like, hell no, I'm not bringing this toy back to you. <laughs> you just stepped on me. Why would I come close to you? Um, so it could be for any reason, you know. Um, but that's that's a really key concept that I like to teach everyone if if and when they want to get into playing with toys with their dogs is having two toys um i think the flirt pole is a really really smart thing as well and anyone that has cats <laughs> i i love playing with cats too and having a toy on a stick is really fun for cats <laughs> now something that you guys both brought up was is this idea of cues because obviously in order for us to be able to use our toys as reinforcers, we need to be able to signal to the dog that they should get the toy and not only to get it, but how to get it. And then we also need the ability to get that toy back with as minimal conflict or stress or frustration as possible. So at what point during this idea of building play, do you start to add in those cues for the dog? Yeah, um, I tend to add them fairly quickly. I am a talkative person, so <laughs> I am quickly talking to my dog, whether he knows what I'm saying or not. Um, but trying to be very mindful. I've even, I've, I've had sessions with friends where there's no dogs out and we just practice saying the word, bringing the toy out the way that we mean to. So, um, you know, I have a bite it cue, which is get it out of my hand. I'm going to present it um, with both hands on either side. It's going to be at my right side. You can come into me and bite that whole toy, get a good grip on it. Um, I have a get it cue, which is turn and run behind you. The toy is likely going to be going behind you. Um, strike is stand still and I'm going to shove that toy into your mouth. <laughs> um, so I have a handful of different words that I start saying pretty early on and then consistently presenting that toy however I've said the cue or the the words. Um, once they kind of see that that's consistent, they'll pick up on it pretty quickly. I've um, done this with many, many dogs in shelters, different breeds, different ages of dogs, and they'll pick up on it pretty quickly. Oh, she said, bite it. I'm going to that right side. And you'll see when you say that cue, their body will start to move towards wherever you've been presenting that toy. Um, and, and you'll, you could do that with food too. And that's where that human mechanic skill comes into play quite a bit as well, because we need to make sure that we are being consistent in how we present the toy to the dog. Um, totally. and, and that we're doing it effectively, because like you mentioned earlier, if I've got a little dog on the ground, I might need to be more mindful about how I'm presenting it in order to not only make it accessible to the dog, but also to not be intimidating because sometimes we can get a little intense and then, and even for a, a larger dog or a dog that's softer in temperament, the way we present it could be a little more stressful for them. Uh, totally. And I, I think that I agree with all, all of that, that you guys have said it. And I, I think that one of the cues that I'm last to add in verbally 
for uh, building toy work is our drop it cue as I really want to make sure that the, uh, the dog understands what I mean by a drop it before I start saying it. It's one of those human um, tendencies to repeat that cue over and over and over and over. And because at that point we're asking for the harder behavior of the dog to actually relinquish the toy, it can very easily set itself up where we have to repeat ourselves a few times if we give it prematurely. And so that uh, where I, I agree with Carissa, I add in my get it cue or my, uh, my strike or snatch cues very early, my drop it or release cue, I want to make sure that the dog understands or at least has a foundation of understanding about that behavior first. And so I tend to start with just uh, teaching the the concept, which you can do in several ways, but um, I find one of the easiest ways for the dogs that really value the toy moving and playing is to stop the movement and the and the um, engagement of the toy. If you have the end of it in a tug or flirt pull situation and you freeze the toy against your body and make it very boring, and as soon as you feel the dog release tension on the toy even slightly, the toy starts getting more animated again right away. Uh, and then the freeze against your body becomes, in a sense, kind of a bridge cue for release the toy because uh, in order to get the toy to be reanimated. And once we see the dog very quickly releasing the toy when it becomes boring, then... Uh, then I can start calling that drop it. Or if we have given the dog possession of the toy and we're playing the two toys game and they grab the one toy we threw and they turn and they come back to us and they see the other toy in my hand. And so the, the toy that they possess is spit out of their mouth very promptly. I could start labeling that drop it, but I want to be really careful not to just say, get into a pattern saying, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it, because then it's a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up because that is one of the problems when we start to teach our dogs something like drop it or leave it. I think people are, it's easy for someone to think a dog might know a skill before they actually do. And oftentimes that results in people repeating cues, which obviously is quite detrimental to the behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes the dog doesn't know it quite as well as we thought. For our dogs that value the toy quite intensely, you know, they maybe haven't learned that word with that value of object. It's too high of a distracting environment for them. Mm -hmm. And I, the other problem that I see when we're working with drop specifically for our dogs that might have lower interest in the toy is that if we focus too quickly on relinquishing the toy, mm -hmm. that becomes the more desired behavior for a dog mm -hmm. that already doesn't have enough interest in the toy itself, where right. with our lower drive dogs, we really want to spend more time focusing on building that play up instead right. of letting go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally. And that goes back to that conflict thing of, I don't want there to be conflict between me and my dog. I want um, it all to be fun and all to be exciting. And um, I want I want when the toys come out for you to be excited, not for you to go, oh, she's going to make me do the drop it thing. I hate that. <laughs> um where's you know where's the food I, I don't want these toys yeah exactly um, and I want something quick I want you know I want my cues to mean something um I don't like just babbling on if I can help it um and you know doing like search and rescue I need you to get your reward we play we have a nice good long play session sometimes I need you to relinquish the toy quickly and we need to keep going we need to keep finding people um, and then, you know, sometimes we don't and you get to parade your toy back to your crate and you win the whole game and you get all the toys in the crate. <laughs> so let's talk about that, adding the toy in as a reinforcer, because obviously timing matters. It matters when the dog does the correct behavior we're looking for and when we cue the dog to grab that toy and then engage with it. And it, it also will change like you just mentioned, whether or not we need another repetition in of the behavior, or if it is more of a one and done. So let's, let's first talk about when we get multiple um, repetitions of a behavior back to back. Talk to us about the timing of the cues and how quickly you're getting that toy back versus letting them engage with it. 
So um, think of your cue as your clicker or your marker. Um, I want to be marking um, almost in some cases before I see the complete behavior. So if I'm doing a nose target and I'm expecting my dog's nose to touch the palm of my hand, I almost want to mark as I see his neck move, not when I feel big slobbery nose in my hand. Because once I feel that, I'm typically marking as his nose is pulling away, which is not the behavior I necessarily want. So I'm looking, I'm looking almost before the behavior occurs for those muscle movements into what I know that behavior is gonna be, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> so that cue is gonna mark um, the behavior that I want, which is hopefully big slobbery nose in the palm of my hand. That cues him to then take his nose away from my hand and get the toy in wherever I, I want it presented. So again, if for me, if I say bite it, it's gonna be on my right side. So I need you to leave the hand look to my right side, wait for that toy to be there, and then bite it with your mouth. And typically we're going to do a nice big tug game. <laughs> um, I guess, Amber, other other opinions there? I think that uh, it, tacking onto that description of the sequence, that it's really important that the presentation of the toy comes after that get it cue or that strike cue uh, that's the mark for the behavior. And if I am pulling that toy out of my pocket before I have said, get it, then my dog's attention is going to be on that, not on the behavior that they're doing. And so we want to make sure that we think about where our toy is positioned in the off time. Um, I like tucked under my armpit. Some people do, um, you know, put it in a treat pouch or um, in a waistband. And uh, I also teach my dog, like if it's dead on the ground, to leave it and engage with me until I give a release cue that says now it's, it's active and um, available for play. But regardless of where the toy is stored, we need to be thinking about uh, behavior, the sequence being behavior, mark or uh, toy access cue, then presenting the toy. And scrambling those up can really muddy things um, a little bit. And then I also, as far as how many repetitions to do, I'm going to be evaluating several things in there. One, I'm going to be evaluating how difficult is the behavior that I'm asking the dog to do. Uh, if I just ask my dog to do a 50-foot recall and uh, I'm not going to take the toy away from them very quickly. Um, I want them to have a big payout, a big response or a big opportunity to fully enjoy that toy before I give my release cue and then send them out for another repetition or just to go back to what they were doing. Um, but if I'm doing something like uh, one of the things I've been working on with my um, little dog recently is teaching him how to put his nose into his Rex Specs goggles. And um, this is something we can get quite a few repetitions here. It's not a very challenging behavior. The goal behavior is nose in inside the straps. If I see that um, for, you know, two seconds, I'm going to release to go play with the flirt pole. We're going to play with the flirt pole for maybe 15 seconds. And then I'm going to ask for my release and he can very quickly do another two second behavior and get access to the flirt pole again. And so I think it, it very varies depending on the type of behavior. Um, I think it also has to vary depending on what your dog actually prefers to do with the toy as well. I also look at the dog, um, like I was saying earlier, is he um, circling me? Is he chomping the toy more than typical? Um, is he is he watching me for my, maybe I have a handful of physical cues of like, put your toy back into my hand for more tug and then I'll release and, and see, hey, how are you feeling? You wanna put that toy back in my hand? Yes, all right, great, let's do some more or no. All right, we need we need some more play before I ask for another repetition of behavior. Um, and like Amber said, that's going to vary on the behavior. If that dog finds that behavior easy, I'm going to be able to ask for more with less play time. Um, if that behavior is really hard or long, say we're doing a, a really long search, um, when he finds that lost person, 
I've timed it. I want to do two minutes of play. Like we, there's no other questions asked. Don't interrupt me in the play session. We're here, we're tugging. I'm going to throw it a few times, see what he wants to do with that toy. But I want to get a really nice long play session before we end it or we continue to find someone else. So not only are we looking at how the dog wants to engage with the toy, but we're also wanting to look at, we'll say the difficulty of the behavior or how long the dog might be working. And that might change how we offer that toy and how long we engage with that toy. Do you find yourselves going to toy play more for behaviors that have already had a foundation built with food or do you often start teaching brand new behaviors from scratch with toy play? Uh, I teach brand new behaviors from scratch with toy play uh, because partially because uh, Jamie doesn't care about food that much. And we've, we've worked on that and that's a whole other podcast episode, but uh, he he gets so, so much more engaged with me and his thinking brain is turned on because toy play, uh, from very beginning is something that I taught him is contingent on his behavior. We, we certainly have play sessions just for play sessions sake, but, uh, when we have certain specific toys that come out, he understands these toys I control based on my behavior. And so I will, I will often do a mix. I'll do a hybrid, uh, but I, I have taught behaviors from scratch using toys only. I think it really depends on the dog. I think it also depends on the type of behavior you're trying to teach. You're going to get a lot different um, energy output from a dog who is hankering for that Frisbee than you will for a dog that's you know being offered a piece of kibble. And so if I'm trying to teach relaxation skills, or chill or fall asleep at my feet skills, I'm not going to pull out the highest value reinforcer for that. I'm going to pull out the lowest value. I'm going to think about what outcomes I want. If I'm trying to, to teach something where I want my dog moving very enthusiastically, very engaging, very quickly, uh, very, you know, just extremely engaged in the training session, then for a dog that has a good understanding of toys, as a, a powerful reinforcer there, then I would, I would not have any problems starting to teach something with, with a toy. For me, very similarly, I think the classic, it depends answer, <laughs> um, is always out there, but, but the things that rush into my head are what kind of output do I want from my dog? Do I want like flashy and sassy and fast? then I'm typically going to use a toy. Um, do I want something calm, relaxed, um, a lot of duration on it? I'm likely to start that with food. Um, Fen is similar to Jamie where toys are more reinforcing than food. So I have to be careful with that. Um, and something that I, I take into consideration when I'm doing cooperative care training or husbandry training is I want him to be doing those behaviors because we've worked on it together and I want him to have the freedom to tell me, no, I don't really want you to give me a cortisone shot right now or whatever it might be. Um, and he, he won't do that if the contingency is a toy. So he will sit there through any uncomfortable thing if the promise is a toy. And I don't necessarily want that when I'm teaching cooperative care. Of course, yes, I want my dog to sit there through things, but I also want him to have the freedom to tell me I'm done with the nail trims, mom, like let's take a break. <laughs> and that typically I'll use food for that so that he has that freedom and it's not such high stakes that he has to um, sit there being uncomfortable through the nail trim. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because for the dogs that are really toy driven, that can create some conflict for them where they want the reinforcer so badly that they might tolerate things that really in other circumstances they wouldn't. And of course with training, we definitely want our dogs to have choice and we want them to be able to say no, uh, especially, you know, for things like animal husbandry. The other thing that I see, especially, you know, uh, Amber, when you were talking about using toys and being careful about which toys and when we use them, because Certainly toy play increases excitement and it can increase arousal and that can be really helpful for certain things like 
getting a really fast recall, but it might not be so helpful when we're trying to teach something calm. For example, a dog staying on a line out where they move to the end of the line and hold that position because that stationary is not necessarily something where I want them, you know, vibrating with excitement. We want them to be more focused. So when you're working with a behavior, what things do you look for in the training session that tell you, hey, this toy or toy as a reinforcer in general might not be the best thing to use in the, in the moment? Um, well, I have a video of Fen as a 10-month-old puppy, and we're playing with two tennis balls. And he got so excited, he started humping me. <laughs> so in that moment, I was like, okay, this is really high stakes for you, buddy. Like we got, that was really exciting. <laughs> um, so as a puppy, I kind of dialed it back. We did more tug and um, built the chase of the ball um, up in larger areas where he was running further and not in my kitchen where it was very close. and <laughs> He got really amped. Um, if, if that helps to answer that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I know because I've played with so many toys with him, his value level. So balls on a string are highest value level for him. Um, and, and then it kind of goes into like, he really likes bite pillows. Um, now that he's an adult dog and has a nice big mouth, he likes um, like fatter toys that he can get his whole mouth on, um, which definitely as a puppy, he didn't like because he didn't have a big mouth. <laughs> so it was harder. Um, he, we, you know, now that he's bigger, we do more with leather toys than with um, soft um, plushy toys. Um, so he really likes, likes those because he can really grip it and munch it. Um, so we have kind of this um, hierarchy of toys that I can use and pull out. Um, with a new dog or a new puppy, I like to kind of give them a variety and see what gets you really excited. Is it the ball because it rolls? Is it the ball because you get to chase it? Um, do you want something big? Ben weirdly really likes um, things that like touch him all over. Like he likes slashing the ball back and forth. And so it smacks him on either side. He likes big, I have some big like horse balls that he likes and he just like sits on them and he likes when they kind of like roll onto him. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> that's great. So that's something that I, you know, would consider uh, introducing to an, a new dog to see what their preference is. Amber, anything to add on that? Uh, I think that all good things is uh, as far as evaluating what your dog likes and also changing it as your dog gets older, I think is important too. Uh, and mixing it up. I have certain toys that only come out during training sessions. And then I have a box of toys that's out all the time. And while we might play in some similar ways uh, with the toys that are out all the time, I don't, uh, I don't expect exactly the same, you know, uh, response to cues. I don't, I just have different expectations for those. And thus when the toys that come out in the agility bag, uh, they come out in training. My dog is, is suddenly paying more attention and saying, Oh, these are the toys that I only get access to if I do all the things. So let me think about how to do all the things. So making, creating value by, uh, not, it doesn't have to be a, um, austere life that your dog lives outside of training sessions. I'm not recommending that. Like we want to play and engage with our dogs. And I believe in spoiling our dogs rotten with all sorts of, um, access to all sorts of things that just, they can choose to engage with or not, but keeping those extra high value toys on the shelf that will come out during your training sessions, I think is, is an important concept to take away here. I also was just thinking about um, price. Like I, my bite pillows are not cheap, so they don't stay out to be shredded. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, you know, come out when we're training and I can, I can make sure that they're not getting holes in them in unwanted places <laughs> where the cheaper toys, sure, you can shred them. I don't really care. They're out all the time. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and having those toys, whether they're special to us, cause they cost a lot <laughs> in, in actual dollars or whether they're special to the dog, having them away and, and the dog not have free access to them can also increase their value. Like Amber, you mentioned pulling them out. The dog starts to understand this is something I only get in certain circumstances. Yeah. And so it can start to build drive for that toy mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So when we're using toys, certainly there are certain dog powered sports that it will be easier to use them on the trail. I'm not going to probably have a tug toy in my belt while I'm bike joring. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to be pulling it out and throwing it for the dog, but I might start some of those foundations in the house with toys. Mm -hmm. I might start some of those foundations on foot, whether I'm hiking or running can across with the dogs. So how do you start to prepare yourself mentally for taking these toys out on the trail? Do you know ahead of time, you know, what you're planning on using specifically, what you're planning on reinforcing, or does that just become something that gets familiar and comfortable for you the more you start using toys? I will definitely, early on in, in my relationship with the dog, I will definitely plan certain training objectives for certain sessions, uh, especially at the early stages of like off-leash reliability skills. I'm going to be doing some specific training sessions on different components of that skill. And so in those cases, I will I will take my my high value toys and go to my my training location and be like, we're going to be looking for this. Uh, so, you know, recently, or I guess recently being a abstract term, but uh, about six months ago, I was workshopping some things with Jamie's recall. And I really wanted to focus on the, uh, t the turn and re-engagement point for me being before he got anywhere close to the end of his long line. So uh, when I cued, I wanted to make sure that he was actually responding to my verbal cue and not to just feeling tension and pressure when he got to the end of our 15 or 30 foot line. And so I took my toy out to the, um, the training field where I work with him and he was on the long line, but I was cueing before he got to the end of the long line and watching to mark or give my toy access cue if he turned and whipped his head back to me without leash tension. And that was my, my criteria point for that, those training sessions that I did. And so I went out with a plan to, to work on that. Other times when I'm just kind of hiking along with my dog, I might have a toy in my pocket. And when I see a good thing that I like, I might, you know, mark and pull it out um, to reinforce and, do it a little bit more kind of casually than going in with a, an actual plan. I'm going to work on X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I like to have a plan. Um, cause another thing with toys is if I don't have the other end of that toy, will you come back to me? Like if I don't have anything else to reinforce with and you're off leash and you have that toy, I'm kind of screwed unless I have a plan. <laughs> Um, so thinking through that, doing a lot of stuff at home, obviously, um, not taking them off leash, keeping the long line on if I don't think that they're going to bring that toy back or come back to me. Um, and something that I purposely did when I started doing more running with my dogs and having them pull me, um, is I got leashes that are, um, are toys. They're like the, like agility leash look things. Um, so that I could have a toy, but I didn't have to carry it with me all the time. I could use their, that leash and have a nice, okay, let's keep going cue of drop the leash, keep running and pulling me and then pull aside, let the biker go by and we can tug with the leash. Um, so that, that was something I taught ahead of time, but I purposely got leashes that they could bite because they like toys so much and I didn't want to have to carry big toys all the time. <laughs> I think that when we talk about our clients and our, our pet dog people, what I can see happen quite a bit is this struggle to bridge between structured, very formal indoor training sessions and then the real world. And so we start to struggle or see our clients struggle because they think they've taught this skill and then they go to use it in the real world and all of a sudden it doesn't work. And I think that the example, Amber, that you brought up is so important of going to the trailhead, the environment where you know that 
you're going to do the fun things, mm -hmm. but not necessarily going with a hike in mind. Right. You're going with a training session in mind. And I'm going to mm -hmm. focus on something as small as that turnaround. Yep. Or maybe I'm working broadly on recall and I see what happens during that training session. But I think sometimes that planning ahead and saying, this is the skill I want to work on. This is the environment I'm going to need this skill in. Mm -hmm. And then practicing that training session there without actually doing the activity has a lot of value. Absolutely. Uh, another area that I've kind of generalized the, our toy skills to is out in our neighborhood, right on just kind of, or kind of patio front lawn area. And that was a very simple thing to do from playing in the house, building a robust skills. Okay, now let's do it outside on our patio, build some uh, expectation that this game happens there. And then we go out on the grass and build the same expectation right there. And then we could more easily use it in our around the neighborhood training. It doesn't even have to be on the trail necessarily. Like I um, did many training sessions when Jamie wouldn't eat food in the presence of other dogs or seeing other dogs, but he would work for a toy. We did many sessions where we'd see a dog down the street and he'd identify that the dog I would mark. And instead of giving him a piece of food that he would spit out or ignore, um, it would immediate, I would mark with our get it cue that said, now the toy is available. Uh, and that only worked in those situations because we had taken the time to build up those toy skills in those slightly more challenging environments. Yeah. When we're talking about our dog powered sports, you know, oftentimes people will go and train at, at the same parks. And so mm -hmm. you get out of the car and your dog knows where you are and they're jacked up and ready to go and they're excited. And don't get me wrong. We definitely want that enthusiasm. I want mm -hmm. my dog to be excited, but if I'm still having trouble getting the dog to pass distractions on the trail, I need to be able to give a reinforcer to my dog in that environment. Yeah. So if I get out of the car and my dog can't eat, my dog can't play, I need to figure out where the dog can do those things. And that's where I need to start that training session back up and then slowly kind of bridge that gap between the environment where my dog can do it mm -hmm. and that more exciting trailhead where their mm -hmm. brain you know, can't focus. And I need to find a way to kind of slowly get back to that point. Mm -hmm. And you may have to be creative with that. Like I, I'm thinking about bird dogs, you know, I want to build toy skills with me, but then I go into an environment and there's birds everywhere. I might lose that dog pretty quickly. <laughs> so, you know, how can I creatively set up scenarios where um, there's not a whole bunch of birds. They're not very exciting birds or something like that. Or maybe they're stuffed birds that I've planted in the tree. <laughs> um, and being able to get calm around that until I, you know, cue the retrieve or shoot the gun or whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about our dog powered sports for a lot of our dogs that really have a lot of drive to do the sport, the forward motion can be a huge reinforcer in and of itself for a lot of these dogs. But there are, as you're getting started, you know, certain things that we need to think about because for a lot of our dogs that might not be purpose bred for dog powered sports, that might not be their biggest reinforcer on the trail. And so if mm -hmm. I'm trying to use that as my reinforcer, but it's not really what the dog wants, then I'm going to struggle. My dog isn't getting reinforced for the behavior that I want them to be. And you'll start to see that, quality of that behavior decrease. So when you guys are out with your dogs, obviously, Amber, I know you do a ton of hiking with your dogs. You do too, Carissa. There are other things in the environment that might be more rewarding for our dogs that yeah. are not in our control. Yeah. So how do you guys manage not only building the toys up to kind of combat with those uh, distractions and how do you control what you can in those environments? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Um, and uh, I like to tell my students, you don't have a deer or a squirrel in your pocket. And so in those situations, when your dog encounters those, uh, there is going to definitely be this exploration of that situation, especially if it's the first time that they've encountered it. There might be some inadvertent reinforcement behaviors we don't want if uh, the dog's like, well, let me test out this. And oh, that paid off really well. I like that. And the best strategy that we have for 
attacking that problem is a combination of kind of management and making uh, sure that we're not putting our dogs in situations where we know that they're over our, their heads. Um, training, building those skills and consistently paying off well, even if we don't have a squirrel in our pocket, consistent access to a very high powered reinforcer in our possession is going to build up a reinforcement history that allows us to do things like call our dogs off of moose, which Carissa and I have done. And uh, then a, a third piece that I like to think of as just a necessary part of some of this is recovery in situations where maybe it doesn't go as planned. Uh, I have kind of this uh, mental rule of what I call a one strike, um, one strike situation in that if I try to cue a behavior and my dog does not respond the way that I would like them to in the trail setting, when there's safety issues there, that I'm going to back up a level of difficulty immediately rather than allowing my dog the chance to rehearse that behavior one more time the way I don't want it to happen. And so that looks a lot like if I, you know, the other day I was, you know, out hiking with Jamie and he found a grouse. He's never seen a grouse before. And this dumb bird wouldn't get up a tree and just kept leading him off into the woods. And he, Jamie was like, I've never seen this before. This is great. I'm going to keep chasing. And he didn't listen to his recall cue. And uh, so then when he did come back, I'm not going to yell and be angry or anything like that. I'm going to praise him for coming back finally. And then he's going back on a leash temporarily until we're back to our um, confidence that we're listening a little bit better. And maybe with toys, uh, I might make sure to reinforce that re-engagement with me a few times with some easier recalls and presenting my toy as a reinforcer um, while the dog is on leash or while the dog is 10 feet away and can do it before they're chasing. So recovering and going back a level um, when we see uh, even just one example of something we don't like is a big important thing. I often, clients come to me <laughs> with a recall problem and I'll ask like, how how many times does your dog not come when you call them on on a hike? And they're like, oh, all the time. I'm like, well, that's, that's too many times. <laughs> we need, all I need is once before I'm making an adjustment to that training plan, uh, whether that's on the trail or off. Yeah, I think... Um... Again, going out with a plan um, and making sure that you have some skills in your back pocket that you've trained already. I, with my um, hound, I used a lot of pre-mac for things. So he saw a squirrel. Mm -hmm. I stood very still. He's on leash until he checked in. And I, I typically right away would say, get it. And we'd chase that squirrel um, until, you know, as he got older, I, we would do those check-ins. He'd see a squirrel or something look at me I'd say get it and you know as he's older he's like okay sometimes I will sometimes I just want to keep walking who cares about the squirrel <laughs> but tiny puppies like of course I want to chase that squirrel mom can we let's do it um and and I work on that until we're on a long line and then the long line isn't maybe in my hand and then you're off leash um and then there are animals that I don't cue get it. Like we don't chase what we don't chase deer. We can chase mm -hmm. squirrels up the tree, but we don't chase the deer. <laughs> um, so if I get a, Hey mom, can we chase that thing? I'll say, Nope, but you can chase this toy over here. Um, and I think a big thing too, is how much access does that dog have to some freedoms? Have we given them enough freedom? Cause that moment that they get it and they haven't had it before, mm -hmm. they're out of there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's a lot harder to reel them back in if they haven't had some safe freedom, whether that's a enclosed area or a long line, um, something like that, where they've, they've had the opportunity to chase the critters and do the thing. Um, something that my, my first dog also taught me was take a deep breath, relax, <laughs> don't make a big deal about it yep. because then it's going to be a big deal all the time. Um, and be really mindful about what I'm rewarding and what I'm punishing. Because mm -hmm. the more I recalled him, the more that was a big punishment. So I tried to save those recalls um, of me actually needing him to come back to me for when I truly needed it versus, oh, he's kind of far away. I'm going to call him. Or he, his nose is on the ground because he's a hound. I'm going to call him. 
um, you know, I'm punishing that every time I'm pulling him off of those smells. So is there a way that I can recall him as needed and save that for the really important times? And then maybe I don't have a reinforcer. Of course, I don't have a reinforcer he wanted. He wanted to go smell and pee on things. So could I cue, okay, go smell this over here? Or can I just be observant about that there's a dog in our group and I saw him pee on that bush and my dog didn't see that? I'm going to recall him and then show him that really cool smell that just occurred. Um, so then mom kind of has more control, air quotes, of the, the environment. And I can point out the cool stuff to him versus just being the naggy two-legged, come back to me and be put back on leash all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so important. And I had um, Paul Kearney on a couple of weeks ago and we talked about reinforcement in general because a lot of the time when we're talking about our dog-powered sports, we are hooked up to wheels, we're moving at fast speeds, and it is hard for us to reinforce in certain ways, mm -hmm. those behaviors, you know, so when we're talking about on by, which is one of the big challenges mm -hmm. that people have is passing the deer, right? Passing other teams, whether that's head on or passing from behind, but all of those things can be broken down off the trail mm -hmm. and reinforced off the trail. And then when we get on the trail, we have to get a little more creative because in that circumstance, I'm not pulling my tug toy out while I'm riding my bike, right? I'm not unclipping and <laughs> going to play tug, but I can do that while I'm canny hiking and running mm -hmm. can across. I can bring that toy with me out mm -hmm. on neighborhood walks and work on passing in that context. And all of the little training sessions that we can do out of that context will help support the desired behavior when we are in harness and on the trail. So mm -hmm. thinking about, those reinforcers that our dog does want, like toys and chasing and tug and figuring out how we can take a single skill, like passing, out of the actual run mm -hmm. and build it up in that circumstance, I think will be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And um, it's always a process. Like, uh, we're always coming up with you know, new things that we see that maybe we didn't like exactly how it went, and thinking like, okay, how can we pull that out of that context? Um, and that can happen with a dog that's six months old or a dog that's, you know, 10 years old. And it doesn't, doesn't have to be a, just a young dog thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking at your dog and saying, no matter how old they are, you know, well, I thought you knew this behavior, but you just showed me that you didn't know it like I thought you did. And that's okay. We're still going to, you know, bring that toy back out and we're going to re- workshop this behavior. The nice thing too, is that there are so many different ways that we can work on something like on by, you yeah. know, it's the idea of something is interesting and we're going to move past it, mm -hmm. you know, and that can be food on the ground. We've got all these different, um, dog training and, and hunting, you know, dummies that we can get. Mm -hmm. So I could prop up, uh, stuffed dogs. I can prop up inflatable deer, birds, all kinds of things. And we can bring those out. Mm -hmm. Like, like we were talking about earlier, to the trailhead, mm -hmm. but we're going there for a training, you know, training for behavior, not necessarily yeah. a physical fitness training run. And we need to be able to separate those two in order to get successful cue responses when we actually are out on the trails with them. Mm -hmm. Well, anything else that you guys thought of, we covered quite a bit here today, but anything else you guys can think of in terms of your trail skills and using toys as reinforcers? I think that the biggest thing is like keeping your dog at the center of it uh, and keeping what your dog enjoys in mind. Uh, and each dog is going to be different. My Aussie was a tennis ball fanatic like that was his his thing and uh, my papillon is a flirt pole fanatic and I've uh if I tried to make you know them equal it wouldn't work as well so like keeping what our dogs enjoy but also um uh what our dog type of toys and also how the play like keeping that at the center is really the most important piece I think yeah, and finding joy in that individual dog and their style of play. Um, I love, you know, volunteering or going to shelters and just like playing, literally playing with dogs, like <laughs> taking a toy 
watching them be goofy, smiling because he's ripping the guts out of the toy <laughs> or um, he's shoving it back in my hand so that I keep smacking at it or tugging at it. Um, you know, it's just, it's really, really fun to watch them each be in their individual selves and how they play with toys. Um, and yeah, have fun with it. Take the conflict out of it. It's not a, it's not a big deal and play is for life. So keep, it is. keep playing with your dog. Yeah. Play <laughs> is for life. And it's a powerful tool that, that we should all utilize some in, in different ways, but being able to observe our dogs and really meet their needs versus our own is really powerful in terms of relationship building and getting those strong behaviors that we need from them. Well, thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day. I think this will help lots of people get, get more adventures out on the trail. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trail.